Chapter Twenty, Part Two of Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter Twenty, The Hundred Years' War. Philip the Sixth and John the Second, Part Two. Which side were the Flemings themselves to take in a conflict of such importance, and already so hot even before it had reached bursting point? It was clearly in Flanders that each king was likely to find his most efficient allies, and so it was there that they made the most strenuous applications. Edward the Third hastened to restore between England and the Flemish communes the commercial relations which had been for a while disturbed by the arrest of the traders in both countries. He sent into Flanders, even to Ghent, ambassadors charged to enter into negotiations with the burghers, and one of the most considerable amongst these burghers, Salver of Courtray, who had but lately supported Count Louis in his quarrels with the people of Bruges, loudly declared that the alliance with the King of England was the first requirement of Flanders, and gave apartments in his own house to one of the English envoys. Edward proposed the establishment in Flanders of a magazine for English wools, and he gave assurance to such Flemish weavers as would settle in England of all the securities they could desire. He even offered to give his daughter Joan in marriage to the son of the Count of Flanders. Philip, on his side, tried hard to reconcile the communes of Flanders to their Count, and so make them faithful to himself. He let them off two years' payment of a rent due to him of forty thousand livres of Paris per annum, he promised them the monopoly of exporting wools from France. He authorized the Bruges to widen the moats of their city, and even to repair its ramparts. The King of England's envoys met in most of the Flemish cities with favor which was real, but intermingled with prudent reservations, and Count Louis of Flanders remained ever closely allied with the King of France, for he was right French and loyal, says Froissart, and with good reason, for he had the King of France almost alone to thank for restoring him to his country by force. Whilst by both sides preparations were thus being made on the continent for war, the question which was to make it burst forth was being decided in England. In the soul of Edward temptation overcame indecision. As early as the month of June, 1336, in a Parliament assembled at Northampton, he had complained of the assistance given by the King of France to the Scots, and he had expressed a hope that, if the French and the Scots were to join, they would at last offer him battle, which the latter had always carefully avoided. In September of the same year he employed similar language in a Parliament held at Nottingham, and he obtained therefrom subsidies for the war going on not only in Scotland, but also in Aquitaine, against the French king's lieutenants. In April and May of the following year, 1337, he granted to Robert of Artois, his tempter for three years past, court favours which proved his resolution to have been already taken. On the 21st of August following he formally declared war against the King of France, and addressed to all the sheriffs, archbishops, and bishops of his kingdom a circular in which he attributed the initiative to Philip. On the 26th of August he gave his ally, the Emperor of Germany, notice of what he had just done, whilst for the first time insultingly described Philip as setting himself up for King of France. At last, on the 7th of October, 1337, he proclaimed himself King of France, as his lawful inheritance, designating as representatives and supporters of his right the Duke of Brabant, the Marquise of Juliers, the Count of Hanault, and William de Bohun, Earl of Northampton. 
The enterprise had no foundation in right, and seemed to have few chances of success. If the succession to the crown of France had not been regulated beforehand by a special and positive law, Philip of Valois had on his side the traditional right of nearly three centuries past, and actual possession, without any disputes having arisen in France upon the subject. His title had been expressly declared by the peers of the kingdom, sanctioned by the church, and recognized by Edward himself, who had come to pay him homage. He had the general and free assent of his people. To repeat the words of the chroniclers of the time, there was no mind in France to be subjects of the King of England. Philip the Sixth was regarded in Europe as a greater and more powerful sovereign than Edward the Third. He had the Pope settled in the midst of his kingdom, and he had often traversed it with an array of valiant nobility whom he knew how to support and serve on occasion as faithfully as he was served by them. He was highly prized and honoured, says Froissart, for the victory he had won at Castle over the Flemings, and also for the handsome service he had done his cousin, Count Louis. He did thereby abide in great prosperity and honour, and he greatly increased the royal state. Never had there been king in France, it was said, who had kept state like King Philip, and he provided tourneys and jousts and diversions in great abundance. No national interest, no public ground, was provocative of war between the two peoples. It was a war of personal ambition, like that which in the eleventh century William the Conqueror had carried into England. The memory of that great event was still, in the fourteenth century, so fresh in France, that when the pretensions of Edward were declared, and the struggle was begun, an assemblage of Normans, barons and knights, or, according to others, the estates of Normandy themselves, came and proposed to Philip to undertake once more, and at their own expense, the conquest of England, if he would put at their head his eldest son, John, their own duke. The king received their deputation at Vincennes, on the 23rd of March, 1339, and accepted their offer. They bound themselves to supply for the expedition four thousand men-at-arms and twenty thousand foot, whom they promised to maintain for ten weeks, and even a fortnight beyond, if, when the Duke of Normandy had crossed to England, his council should consider the prolongation necessary. The conditions in detail in the subsequent course of the enterprise thus projected were minutely regulated and settled in a treaty published by Dutillet in 1588, from a copy found at Caen when Edward III became master of that city in 1346. The events of the war, the long fits of hesitation on the part of both kings, and the repeated alternations from hostilities to truces and truces to hostilities, prevented anything from coming of this proposal, the authenticity of which has been questioned by M. Michelet, among others, but the genuineness of which has been demonstrated by M. Adolphe Despont, member of the appeal court of Caen, in his learned Histoire du Cotonin. Edward III, though he had proclaimed himself King of France, did not at the outset of his claim adopt the policy of a man firmly resolved and burning to succeed. From 1337 to 1340 he behaved as if he were at strife with the Count of Flanders, rather than with the King of France. He was incessantly to and fro, either by embassy or in person, between England, Flanders, Hainault, Brabant, and even Germany, for the purpose of bringing the princes and people to actively cooperate with him against his rival. And during this diplomatic movement such was the hostility between the king and the Count of Flanders, that Edward's ambassadors thought it impossible for them to pass through Flanders in safety, and went to Holland for a ship in which to return to England. Nor were their fears groundless, for the Count of Flanders had caused to be arrested, and was still detaining in prison at the castle of Rupelmond, the Fleming Sohir of Courtrai who had received into his house at Ghent one of the English envoys, 
and had shown himself favourable to their cause. Edward keenly resented these outrages, demanded but did not obtain the release of Sohir of Cartray, and by way of revenge gave orders in November 1337 to two of his bravest captains, the Earl of Derby and Walter de Mani, to go and attack the fort of Cadsand, situated between the island of Walcheren and the town of Euclus, or Sluis, a port of consequence to the Count of Flanders, who had confided the keeping of it to his bastard brother Guy, with five thousand of his most faithful subjects. It was a sanguinary affair. The besieged were surprised, but defended themselves bravely. The landing cost the English dear. The Earl of Derby was wounded and hurled to the ground. But his comrade, Walter de Mani, raised him up with a shout to his men of, Lancaster, for the Earl of Derby, and at last the English prevailed. The bastard of Flanders was made prisoner, the town was pillaged and burned, and the English returned to England, and told their adventure, says Froissart, to the king, who was right joyous when he saw them and learned how they had sped. Thus began that war which was to be so cruel and so long. The Flemings bore the brunt of it. It was a lamentable position for them. Their industrial and commercial prosperity was being ruined. Their security at home was going from them. Their communal liberties were compromised. Divisions set in amongst them. By interest and habitual intercourse they were drawn towards England, but the Count, their lord, did all he could to turn them away from her, and many amongst them were loath to separate themselves entirely from France. Burghers of Ghent, as they chatted in the thoroughfares and at the crossroads, said one to another that they had heard much wisdom, to their mind, from a burgher who was called James van Artevelt, and who was a brewer of beer. They had heard him say that, if he could obtain a hearing and credit, he would in a little while restore Flanders to the good estate, and they would recover all their gains without standing ill with the King of France or the King of England. These sayings began to get spread abroad, insomuch that a quarter or half the city was informed thereof, especially the small folks of the commonality, whom the evil touched most nearly. They began to assemble in the streets, and it came to pass that one day, after dinner, several went from house to house calling for their comrades, and saying, "'Come and hear the wise man's counsel.' On the 26th of December, 1337, they came to the house of the said James Van Artevelt, and found him leaning against his door. Far off as they were when they first perceived him, they made him a deep obeisance, and, Dear sir, they said, we are come to you for counsel, for we are told that by your great and good sense you will restore the country of Flanders to good case. So tell us how. Then James Van Artevelt came forward, and said, Sirs, comrades, I am a native and burgher of this city, and here I have my means. Know that I would gladly aid you with all my power, you and all the country. If there were here a man who would be willing to take the lead, I would be willing to risk body and means by his side. And if the rest of ye be willing to be brethren, friends and comrades to me, to abide in all matters at my side, notwithstanding that I am not worthy of it, I will undertake it willingly. Then said all with one voice, we promise you faithfully to abide at your side in all matters, and to therewith adventure body and means. For we know well that in the whole countship of Flanders there is not a man but you worthy so to do. Then Van Artevelt bound them to assemble on the next day but one in the grounds of the monastery of Biloc, which had received numerous benefits from the ancestors of Sohir of Courtrai, whose son-in-law Van Artevelt was. This bold burgher of Ghent, who was born about 1285, was sprung from a family the name of which had been for a long while inscribed in their city upon the register of industrial corporations. His father, 
John Van Artevelt, a cloth worker, had been several times over Sheriff of Ghent, and his mother, Mary Van Groote, was a great-aunt to the grandfather of the illustrious publicist called in history Grotius. James Van Artevelt, in his youth, accompanied Count Charles of Valois, brother of Philip the Handsome, upon his adventurous expeditions in Italy, Sicily, and Greece, and to the island of Rhodes, and it had been close by the spots where the soldiers of Marathon and Salamis had beaten the armies of Darius and Xerxes, that he had heard of the victory of the Flemish burghers and the workmen attacked in 1302, at Courtrai, by the splendid army of Philip the Handsome. James Van Artevelt, on returning to his country, had been busy with his manufacturers, his fields, the education of his children, and Flemish affairs up to the day when, at his invitation, the burghers of Ghent thronged to the meeting on the 28th of December, 1337, in the grounds of the monastery of Biloque. There he delivered an eloquent speech, pointing out unhesitatingly but temperately the policy which he considered good for the country. Forget not, he said, the might and glory of Flanders. Who, pray, shall forbid that we defend our interests by using our rights? Can the King of France prevent us from treating with the King of England? And may we not be certain that if we were to treat with the King of England, the King of France would not be the less urgent in seeking our alliance? Besides, have we not with us all the communes of Brabant, of Hainault, of Holland, and of Zealand? The audience cheered these words. The commune of Ghent forthwith assembled, and on the 3rd of January, 1337, according to the old style, which made the year begin at the 25th of March, re-established the offices of captains of parishes according to olden usage, when the city was exposed to any pressing danger. It was carried that one of these captains should have the chief government of the city, and James Van Artevelt was at once invested with it. From that moment the conduct of Van Artevelt was ruled by one predominant idea, to secure free and fair commercial intercourse for Flanders with England, whilst observing a general neutrality in the war between the kings of England and France, and to combine so far all the communes of Flanders in one and the same policy. And he succeeded in this twofold purpose. On the 29th of April, 1338, the representatives of all the communes of Flanders, the city of Bruges numbering amongst them a hundred and eight deputies, repaired to the castle of Mel, a residence of Count Louis, and then James Van Artevelt set before the Count what had been resolved upon amongst them. The Count submitted, and swore that he would thenceforth maintain the liberties of Flanders in the state in which they had existed since the Treaty of Athes. In the month of May following, a deputation consisting of James Van Artevelt and other burghers appointed by the cities of Ghent, Bruges, and Ypres, scoured the whole of Flanders, from Balleul to Termond, and from Dinove to Dunkirk, to reconcile the good folks of the communes to the Count of Flanders, as well for the Count's honour as for the peace of the country. Lastly, on the 10th of June, 1338, a treaty was signed at Anvers between the deputies of the Flemish communes and the English ambassadors, the latter declaring, We do all to wit that we have negotiated way and substance of friendship with the good folks of the communes of Flanders, in form and manner herein after following. First, they shall be able to go and buy the wools and other merchandise, which have been exported from England to Holland, Zealand, or any other place whatsoever. And all traders of Flanders who shall repair to the ports of England shall there be safe and free in their persons, and their goods, just as in any other place where their ventures might bring them together. Item. We have agreed with the good folk, and with all the common country of Flanders, that they must not mix nor intermeddle in any way, 
by assistance of men or arms, in the wars of our lord the king and the noble Sir Philip of Valois, who holdeth himself for king of France. Three articles following regulated in detail the principles laid down in the first two, and by another charter Edward III ordained that all stuffs marked with the seal of the city of Ghent might travel freely in England, without being subject according to elege and quality to the control to which all foreign merchandise was subject. Histoire de Flandre, by M. le Baron Kerwan de Lettenhove, pages 199-203. to 203. Van Artevelt was right in telling the Flemings that, if they treated with the King of England, the King of France would be only the more anxious for their alliance. Philip of Valois, and even Count Louis of Flanders, when they got to know of the negotiations entered into between the Flemish communes and King Edward, redoubled their offers and promises to them. But when the passions of men have taken full possession of their souls, words of concession and attempts at accommodation are nothing more than postponements or lies. Philip, when he heard about the conclusion of a treaty between the Flemish communes and the King of England, sent word to Count Louis that this James van Artevelt must not, on any account, be allowed to rule, or even live, for if it were so for long the Count would lose his land. The Count, very much disposed to accept such advice, repaired to Ghent and sent for van Artevelt to come and see him at his hotel. He went, but with so large a following that the Count was not at the time at all in a position to resist him. He tried to persuade the Flemish burgher that, if he would keep a hand on the people so as to keep them to their love for the King of France, he, having more authority than any one else for such a purpose, much good would result to him, mingling, besides, with this address, some words of threatening import. Van Artvelt, who was not the least afraid of the threat, and who at heart was fond of the English, told the Count that he would do as he had promised the communes. Hereupon he left the Count, who consulted his confidants as to what he was to do in this business, and they counselled him to let them go and assemble their people, saying that they would kill Van Artevelt secretly or otherwise. And, indeed, they did lay many traps and made many attempts against the captain, but it was of no avail, since all the commonality was for him. When the rumour of these projects and these attempts was spread abroad in the city, the excitement was extreme, and all the burghers assumed white hoods, which was the mark peculiar to the members of the commune when they assembled under their flags, so that the Count found himself reduced to assuming one, for he was afraid of being kept captive at Ghent, and on the pretext of a hunting party, he lost no time in gaining his castle of Mel. End of chapter 20, part 2